Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about telling your stories, or what I'm tempted to describe as telling your stories before it's too late. For better or worse, I have a solid understanding right now of what the sense is of feeling like it's too late to tell a story, or more to the point, too late to hear one. And I want to get to that as the topic today. My plan, though, was to break into a sports show, look at uh, March Madness, break down the tournament that's upcoming, talk about the tremendous achievement of the Connecticut women's basketball team, and name an appropriate different drummer for women's sports. And I may get there, I just may get there later than I want to. Instead of doing it right in the middle of NCAA March Madness leading up to the crowning of yet another champion in both men's and women's basketball, and kind of focus on basketball as the, probably the best sport to talk X's and O's on a podcast, I may do it after it's all said and done. I've just pushed the topic out of the way. And the reason that I've done that is because I've just returned from my mother's funeral. And obviously, that's leading me to, well, it's changing the topic I want to discuss today. And it's not that this was an unexpected surprise. If I go back to the middle of last year, particularly around the Labor Day holiday weekend, you could sort of see that something was happening health-wise, that a turn was being taken, and that somebody who'd you know survived cancer and a broken back and some other health consequences might have finally, um, finally picked up the straw that was going to break the camel's back. So dealing with this situation as if it's somehow final. And one of the thoughts that that's brought to my mind, ironically brought to my mind as somebody who I feel like, at least as a hobby, functions as a storyteller, that I've got a real storytelling problem on my hands. And I want to talk about it before I kind of turn the page and try to go on with inappropriate conversations and potentially walk the earth as normal. Now, what does normal mean? (laughs) Let me do some house cleaning right up front in what I hope will be record-setting time. Inappropriate Conversations has a website, www.inappropriateconversations.org. Every podcast I've ever recorded, including the Walk the Earth podcasts, can be found there. There's a Facebook page for Inappropriate Conversations, separate from my personal uh, family pictures type of a Facebook page. There's also one for Walk the Earth. And although Walk the Earth as a podcast is sitting in a temporary hiatus, what I think is a temporary hiatus, I still do actively post things that I'm thinking about or that are of interest to me on the Walk the Earth page. The page itself hasn't gone dormant. You can find me on Twitter, IC underscore Greg. Both these podcasts share a feed, which you can find on iTunes, other podcatchers, including Stitcher Smart Radio. And I've made a few more strides in moving forward with SoundCloud, posting clips and portions of past shows on SoundCloud to give people an audio clip, an audio hint of what that show and that topic might be. That includes reaching the point of hitting the very first Walk the Earth episode and finally having to answer the question of how do I want to handle Walk the Earth? Rather than being just a snip in some cases or an entire show in others, I'm going to try to be very consistent with Walk the Earth and post everything from after the question is introduced in the theme music to before the moment of prayer. So essentially, whatever an answer might mean from the perspective of the Walk the Earth podcast, I'm going to use SoundCloud to share the complete answers and, of course, the text of each SoundCloud post 
uh, restates the question. So it's not like there's any mystery. I'm not playing a game of guess what the question was. It's not podcast Jeopardy or anything like that. But that's how I intend to handle uh, SoundCloud for Walk the Earth. And uh, yeah, maybe the situation that I'm dealing with right now could lead to a Walk the Earth question. I haven't reached that point in the process of processing what this means. And I guess the question to frame it up is that to me what it means is there are certain stories that perhaps have not been told in my family's history or of my family's history that I now know will never be told. And I wonder if that isn't part of the design, if that wasn't part of the plan. And the black sheep of my family. I've shared this every time I've talked about family on either Walk the Earth or here on Inappropriate Conversations, and never has that felt more true than at this moment. Now, to be the black sheep of my particular family doesn't necessarily mean prison record and reckless living and betrayals and all sorts of drama. No, we're fairly low-key when it comes to drama, I guess, is the way I'd say that it goes. We don't have those kinds of stories that are part of the family history, but whatever stories we do have, I think I could probably safely assume that many people in my family, uh, including most of my siblings, have a mission of feeling very comfortable or even trying to ensure that the stories that might actually be dark don't get told. And I would be, of course, the outlier there. I'm a podcaster. I'm a storyteller uh, by at least hobby, if not to some degree avocation. When I went to college, I went to college pursuing a journalism degree. My job was to tell stories that people don't want told. I mean, the definition of a journalist, the way you distinguish between journalism and public relations or advertising, is that the PR person is telling the story that the person who's given them the story once told in the way they want it told. A journalist, by very nature, is doing the work of telling stories that some of the people who are in those stories do not want told. If the journalist isn't doing that, if they aren't telling stories that somebody wants to not have out there, then they're just another branch of the public relations firm. They're just another part of the PR process. And of course, there are a lot of very powerful people in America today who really want journalism to function as nothing more than PR for whoever's in charge. We call that propaganda when we look you know, discerningly at other countries and criticize how their quote-unquote free press is managed. And yet we're very dangerously close to making a lot of those same mistakes ourselves right now. No. I'm the black sheep of my family. I would prefer to tell the stories that some folks would not want to be told. And in fact, in the process of preparing for a funeral and coming out of the aftermath of that funeral and sharing family stories, in just the last week, I have probably been guilty of sharing a couple of stories that many people in the room wished had not been told. Now, to my credit, the first one, I didn't bring it up. And I even offered a quick disclaimer that if we wanted to talk about this, I was going to go there, that this story wasn't going to be told in a half Asked why it wasn't going to be whitewashed. If we wanted to talk about it, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it critically. That to me, it is perfectly okay to be willfully positive and hold a recently deceased person in unconditional positive regard. I'm just becoming aware of how little people understand about that concept. For someone who is not a wonderful person to walk into that person's open casket and say, oh, that person was a wonderful person. He was a great guy. Well, that's not unconditional positive regard. That's lying. My mom, by all accounts, was one of those wonderful people, and I don't believe that anybody was BSing me or my siblings in any way by uh, finding very few things that they were willing to say that were critical. That is unconditional positive regard. But whitewashing and unconditional positive regard are not the same concepts. They're not even of the same type. So if we want to bring up a story about a decision that a mother made 
less than a year, just a few months after a daughter, a beloved daughter died, to bring a uh, homeless mother and child, young woman and child, into her home, I'm going to ask the question of whether or not that would be a wise decision. I'm going to wonder if not like not unlike the airplane situation where when the airbags come down in a decompression emergency that you're supposed to put the airbag over your own face first before you presume to take care of somebody next to you, even if that somebody is a young, vulnerable person who is in your charge and needs your help. The notion being that you've got to take care of yourself first in order to equip yourself to take care of others. And how in the world could you have taken care of yourself so soon after the tragic loss of a daughter who's not even 40 years old, who's left behind a very young son? How could that, which I've talked about before in Inappropriate Conversations 41, December of 2010, or maybe very early January of 2011, how could that possibly make sense? Well, I wasn't allowed to ask whether that makes sense. It was viewed as completely socially unacceptable for me to offer any criticism or to assign responsibility to the recently deceased for that not going well. Because in my opinion, it went badly in a predictable way. Because you had not taken care of the flow of oxygen into your own body sufficiently to be able to take care of somebody else. And if that person misbehaved or took advantage of you, or if it all ended in a really negative, contentious way, yeah, to some degree that was absolutely predictable. I'm, I'm the guy who brings that up. I'm also the guy who, when you know someone says, well, our family doesn't have any stories that are, you know, worse than that or darker than that. I'd say, well, I dropped a name and silenced the room and broke up the conversation because I'm not going to BS here. Things aren't always rosy and perfect. And you can have unconditional positive regard and great respect for the recently deceased while still being honest about the challenges that they faced. This wasn't a judgment against my mother. I don't think that she did anything wrong with a capital W. I just think that the situation didn't make sense and wasn't likely to succeed. And that when faced with other situations that were going to be challenging and against all odds and unlikely to succeed, our family has stories of rising above those situations. But you know what? Far too many of those stories, I don't know the ending to. Because as a family, we prioritized not talking about that stuff over and above everything else. And I think that there's a certain amount of uh, protecting the decorum and dignity from some of my siblings. There's a little bit of I don't want to hear it from others. But I feel like I'm sitting here with two real problems related to a breakdown in family storytelling. And I don't want to overstate it, but I also don't want to understate it. One of them I spoke about as recently as last November in the year 2016 on Inappropriate Conversations in the midst of a very long, you know, hour and a half sort of rant called Dear Family Member. What is the risk of the things we're not allowed to discuss? What are the consequences of that? Is there advice that we're not giving each other? Is there advice we're not getting? Because there are certain things we just don't discuss anymore, or maybe have never really fully discussed and should have. That's one problem. The other problem is that some of these stories, which are a bit darker, have you know, things that we need to learn from them. If there were questions, for example, about my father's relationship with some of the women that he worked with. Now, I don't think there are such stories. I bet if the question were allowed to be asked, it would be quickly answered with, no, that was just normal husband-wife relationships, thing you, things you worry about. But I can remember coming home from school one day. And I wasn't early. I wasn't unexpected. I hadn't skipped out, at least not that day. And walking into the front door, and in our house at the time, you open up that front door, and to your immediate right, I mean a hard right, is a staircase leading up to where the children's bedrooms were. 
And if you go straight ahead, you get to a living room, uh, eventually the kitchen, parents' master bedroom suite. But to the left, the very first room in the house, it's not a stairway or a you know, closet underneath the stairs, was a room that had a piano in it and sheet music, musical instruments, stereo. And my mom was sitting in, in the larger plush chair in that room listening to Billy Joel. Now, this surprised me. Um, my mom, on the scale of easy listening to rock and roll, was tilted pretty far toward the easy listening side of the equation. So her listening to my older sister's um, Billy Joel album was inherently surprising. But it was one of those Always a Woman to Me songs that was playing, and she was in tears. I mean, in tears and sobbing and didn't want to talk about it. Okay, well, here I am. My wife is roughly the same age, a little bit older now, actually, than my mom was at the time. And whatever it was in my mom's world, whether it was her balancing home and career, whether it was her relationship with my father, whether it was her relationship with her mother, we don't know what it was. But whatever it was, there's a story there. That story has never been told. If that story was about some problem inherent in my mother's relationship with my father or his relationship with people that he worked with, uh, that's a story that's never been told. And, and I don't know it. I do know a couple of things which make me suspicious and make me feel like there's information that I don't have at this upcoming stage in my life that would be helpful for me to at least know what my parents went through and what they decided to do. And of course, the underlying theme of this podcast is I now know I will never know. I will never know because either none of us know or the two people who are not me who do know are never telling. One, either just out of a sense of decorum, trying to protect all of his younger siblings from things that aren't important, or my youngest sibling trying to make sure that mom's legacy stays intact and that nobody who has a podcast, for God's sake, knows things which probably should never be told. I'm never going to know the answers. But I do know that my mom never understood and was often openly hostile to the idea of men and women being friends. So only a couple things that I brought back from my mom's home this past week. I did not intend to um, leave with a lot of stuff, but my wife, who is very wise about these things, suggested that we take two suitcases instead of one and we leave some room just in case there are mementos or family heirlooms or things that my mom specifically said, hey, I want Greg to have this, that there be space in the suitcase for it. One was a childhood Christmas book, a book of Christmas stories, where both my siblings had managed to obtain their own copy over the years, so I ended up with the antique. That's very cool. I don't know, frankly, if I've earned having the antique copy, <laughs> but no one so far has expressed a desire to have the original and give me their their newer Amazon.com purchase or whatever, and I'd happily switch if they did, because my emotional connection to things is not all that great. I tend to be more emotionally connected to people and even bizarrely moments in time. The other one was a book, the 1971 edition of the New American Standard Bible, the one that was uh, before changes were made to the text uh, that weren't based on archaeology but were based on uh, partisan politics, uh, where things that were stated in Hebrew, in particular the Hebrew is the part that bothers me, were adjusted, tweaked, and updated to mean something that they did not originally mean and have not historically meant to Judaism. Because either for a pro-life perspective or a, uh, a women in ministry perspective, it was helpful and advantageous to the editors in the, in the mid-1990s to change what the Bible said. I've long thought that the New American Standard Bible was a good word-for-word translation, but I've always wanted the original, the one that was before the pollution. And for whatever reason, my mom happened to have a copy of it on the shelf. 
So now I've got a copy. Now, the other thing that I took with me was my mom's annotated picture book of my wedding. Both the professional photographer's copies, when you get to the actual ceremony portion of it, and family pictures from the rehearsal dinner and before the rehearsal dinner. The photographer was there for the official reception. My wedding was handled with a formal reception with all the traditional cake-cutting type activities going on. And then we had a reception after the reception. I got married a couple of weeks after graduating from college, and the ceremony itself proved an opportunity to actually get together that one last time with college friends before those of us who graduated had moved on to careers in different parts of the state or even country. So we all came together at a party after the reception at my wife's childhood home, and there were pictures from that as well. I'd made a point to include a couple of people from my college experience in the wedding, one in the wedding party itself, and one because her gender was not male, and the traditional approach of both my parents and my wife's parents uh, had no place in the wedding party. My wife already had four people. I had four people. I didn't have a fifth. Uh, I just didn't line up very well to add somebody on my side when this is the person I wanted on my side. I've spoken about her before in Inappropriate Conversations 44 and 80, identifying her primarily as Spider. I had pictures of her as the person who was at the reception line cutting the cake, playing a role in the wedding in whichever way we possibly could, being far too old to be the flower girl, and yeah, gender politics making it impossible for her to be up at the altar with us. So I did that, but kind of going through the book of pictures where my mom had written her own comments about it, she made special annotations for both my wife's male friends and my female friends to emphasize friend, 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 friend. I'm not sure, not looking at the book right now, whether they're quotation marks or underlines or capital capital letters, but it was very important to my mom that this be called out as different. And I'm very aware of a couple of things in my relationship with my mom that were broken and stayed broken all the way to the end because they were never addressed. One was this, what does Greg think he's up to, still having friends who are female after he's married, conversation that my mom had with my wife. Never with me. Never acknowledged that the conversation happened behind my back. So no real way to bring it up, no real way to settle it. I would just continue to bring up from time to time the complexities of my relationship with women and my respect for the way men and women can and should interact in a modern society, providing every opportunity for the rest of that story to be told. But mom never went there, so it never happened. Again, telling your stories while there's still time, because there's going to be a point when that story is incomplete forever. And this doesn't even cover the stories that needed to be told that are lost for good, incomplete completely, because I don't even know that there's a partial story there to be addressed. You know, so that that was one of them. And another, you know, story that I think was incomplete and not really truly explored and explained, my wife in the process of kind of going through the same sort of picture books and other stuff, trying to help us decide as quickly as we could, as quickly as was respectful of the emotional needs of everyone involved, to get a condo ready for sale. This is a this is a death without a in-home survivor. It's not like when my dad died and my mom simply just kind of took over the reins of everything. This is the end of that generation in our family. My mom is gone. Her sisters are gone. My father's brother is gone. The grandparents of me are gone. This is sort of the end of an era, which makes it a little bit harder. But my wife stumbled across 
a document that I sort of knew was there. I mean, I'd heard from my older sister before she died, uh, very concerned that mom was very concerned that I, my parenting style was going to be some sort of a disaster and that there was no hope for my kids, her grandkids. And this was expressed in one of those journals uh, at the time. Now, I don't know if there's journal entries that came along later retracting that and addressing it. Again, trying to hold the recently deceased an unconditional positive regard, but a little bit naive to think that some of the things that she was saying very openly to my sisters and their spouses, my in-laws, wouldn't somehow get back to me and shouldn't be addressed more openly. But that's, I guess, the problem I'm trying to address here is that these are stories which were not addressed openly, that were left intentionally cryptic or unresolved. And so here I am, wrestling with kind of two competing ideas, that I know that both my kids were respected and respected as adults by their grandmother, that she could pass a lie detector test, that she thinks that they have done a great job growing up, and that they've become highly respectful, respectable young men and women, and that she is so proud of them. But that has no relation whatsoever to the things that she actually said and wrote 15 years earlier. I understand that this is a fine line, holding somebody accountable for things that they said to everybody but me 15 years ago, and expecting that there might be some dialogue around that, some clarification provided to it. It's a fine line. Maybe not talking about it after all these years is an ultimate act of grace because on some level my, my mom is still concerned and would still back up her original perspective. Or maybe I'm being insufficiently gracious because over those years I should just assume that it never coming up again face to face with me was a, was in and of itself sort of a passive retraction and that I should be respectful of that retraction and, and recognize it fully as such. Uh, I'm willing to stipulate to all that because I'm a grieving person and I don't know that I can necessarily be held to the account of having a high enough standard to to be that rational right now, perhaps. But I will say this, that I've been lied to before, right? Uh, the Dear Family Member episode talked a little bit about, uh, in fact, even the last Walk the Earth that I've recorded. And the reason I've got a little bit of a Walk the Earth writer's block, the one from December 2016, I've been lied to all these years about whether character is important in presidential elections, that's clear and that's obvious. I mean, these are people that I'm talking with and about, uh, with one exception, or sibling and one sibling spouse as an exception, who voted for Trump, proudly voted for Trump, glad they did it. And they're the same people who would have scolded me for voting for Mondale in my original ballot that I cast, because I thought character mattered, and I thought that mental health mattered, and I thought that uh, what you might do with absolute power if you thought you'd just been given it mattered. That those sort of things, uh, we're, we're not on the same side of the political spectrum. This, again, this is one of the elements that makes me an outlier, makes me a black sheep in the family. Because these things were unaddressed, and I couldn't even get the siblings who were the most upset with me about the fact that I was willing to talk about these things and ask these questions and, and deal with the entire person, not just some sort of whitewashed image that we wanted to share to the world. In a family topic, behind closed doors, not in front of you know, strangers and, and visitors and uh, fellow mourners who weren't, you know, blood relatives. This was a like blood relative conversation. But I will tell you, and it, it makes me incredibly sad, and I hold myself somewhat accountable for things not going well, that I, I got on a plane and flew back to where I live several states away, knowing that for the most part, my presence at my own mother's funeral was a problem that was being managed. I was a situation that had to be handled more than a brother. I'm sure now. No, there's no doubt I was a brother, but I was also a problem while I was there. I was somebody who 
not only thinks very differently than the dearly departed and the survivors who live locally to her, but have said so publicly and even said so angrily and even said so confrontationally. Now, I don't have any reason to believe that any of the things that I've spoken in this public way have even been heard by family members who seem to think that maybe I, that whatever I'm doing is not something that they're a part of in any way. Okay, fine. But at the same time, I definitely felt like I was a problem that was being solved, or at least a potential problem that was being avoided for almost the entire time that I was there. One example would be that in previous visit to my mom, she constantly wanted to bring up politics. So the last time that I was with her in any sort of formal way, short of this uh, most recent weekend visit at the very end, was in October, late October, leading up to the presidential elections. And the way I would describe that visit with my mom was that she constantly wanted to talk about politics and then when you expressed an opinion that disagreed with her or shared factual information that should have been sufficient to have her reassess her own opinion, would you divert it in any way from the Fox News talking points, in other words? She would um, insist that she was beginning to have trouble breathing and heart problems and didn't want to discuss it anymore. And of course, changing the topic would immediately improve her health. Now, I don't want to diminish this in any way. The woman did have a heart attack in September um, the resurgence of a cancer that had been kind of beaten once but had come back. She was facing health situations that would make stress very problematic and make it very difficult to function. But she went seeking the stress. So I was kind of clear that this is not the time to ask any questions about whether there had been any infidelity in my own parents' relationship that could explain some of the weird things that I can remember observing as a teenager. I wasn't going to get the rest of the story about my grandmother on my father's side. That just wasn't going to happen. There was no point in asking any other questions about, um, as a man who's now turning the corner from being married and a father in the, with kids in the house to empty nester, and what's that next turn? I'm facing fairly significant life changes. Now, I'm excited about them. I think they're great. But if there's something to worry about, if there was divorce that creeped into anybody in my father's family or my mother's extended family, would have been a good time to know about it. But it was kind of clear that, no, these are questions I'm not going to be allowed to ask, that my mom would rather talk about other things. But then as soon as those other things became a concern for me, if I wasn't just toting the Republican line about certain issues, then we weren't going to be able to have a conversation about that either. Because I, the last thing I was going to be was the person who killed his mother by asking the wrong question or introducing her to the wrong people. You know, if I'd, there was a point in that visit where I brought up some very close friends of mine who are women who are married and wanted to make the point that I was extremely angry at my mother's generation, perhaps more on my in-law's side of the fence, but very angry with that generation because they were living in ways that didn't represent to me the ideal of a traditional marriage themselves, and yet would rip this couple apart if given the chance. Now, maybe not violently, but I can't say with confidence. I can't testify with certainty that I don't have relatives, either blood-related or in-law-related, who would not rip this couple apart violently. I don't know that, because I wasn't able to get to the rest of the story. 
I just found a convenient way to end conversations that I didn't want to have on my side. Not by saying, I couldn't talk about this, I was getting a headache, I was, uh, it was too much for me to bear. No, I would end the conversation by having the conversation, by bringing up the people I care about, insisting that I knew them, insisting that in many ways they reminded me of my older sister who died you know, decades earlier, a decade earlier, and saying that I could not abide by a set of political policies that would harm these people for no other reason than they were committed to each other and formed a relationship. And that alone would end the conversation. And I suppose in some ways that's a good thing because conversation wasn't going to go anywhere positive. It was going to go somewhere destructive. And again, I'm a little bit worried that I would be the son responsible for speaking words, innocent, questioning, intelligent, analyzing words, loving Jesus with all my mind, kinds of words that would cause somebody to fall over dead. Because rather than dealing with a reality that they had bubbled and insulated themselves from, in the heart of the heart of the country and hadn't had to see it first on and deal with it first on that the question alone might somehow do great physical harm to somebody. I found it incredibly ironic because there weren't very many points during the funeral services and the calling hours that I could find comforting. And maybe that's normal, but I've been on the other side of these calling hours and I've seen people comforted. So I have a sense that it's possible. I also have a sense that I did not experience it. There are a couple of exceptions, and I'll, I'll talk about them. But generally speaking, there was a lot of awkwardness, a lot of not talking, not sharing. And again, maybe I, I'm ironic. I'm the black sheep of the family. I'm a storyteller from a family of people who doesn't seem to want stories to be told necessarily. But this is the part of the country that I grew up in. So I went... From the very beginning of kindergarten, elementary school, junior high, high school, in this state. I went to college in this state. My first job was in this state. I was part of two United Methodist congregations when I was growing up in this state, including one all the way through eighth grade, and the other one eighth grade until I finally, that's the church I transferred my membership from when we actually moved to another state and were too far away to even pretend to have an active membership. One of those two churches is the church my wife and I got married in. We are connected in very real ways. Meaning that from a social media perspective, I am Facebook friends with a lot of those people. And even more, I'm Facebook friends with the ones who are Facebook friends with my siblings. Either my sister because she's younger and that had a, another generation that came after me. Or my brother because he was older and there was another whole generation of people who saw me as the kid. But now we're all adults. We know each other. We're still maybe 10 years apart in age, but we know each other. My brother and I argue about whether this is the reddest of the red states. We don't argue about whether it's one of the two. <laughs> it's a question of perspective. But you're dealing with a state that voted overwhelmingly for Trump, a state that uh, last time had not a single county that had a majority vote for Obama. So you're dealing with a place where it's not surprising. It shouldn't be surprising that you'd be encountering a lot of people who are yeah, perhaps Republicans who are struggling with the beginning of this Trump administration, they're seeing some of the same things I'm seeing, at least I hope that they're seeing with clear vision, that things aren't happening exactly the way they'd hoped, that the only thing they really got was not Hillary, and they haven't gotten much else besides that that they can hang a hat on. And uh, But in the course of winding up that election, either in the immediate aftermath, when I was decrying black churches being burned to the ground and swastikas being scrawled on Jewish graves, that we had a real problem. We had a real sore winter problem. We needed to do something about it. And the people who voted for this man needed to fix it. I was told very harshly by some of these people that I'd 
grown up and gone to church with that they felt that my salvation was somehow at stake, that that I was on the wrong side of things, that I was clearly really confused and that they were praying for me. Well, you know what? The best opportunity anybody that I've ever known my entire life has had to pray for me was a week ago. It was just a little more than a week ago that I'd come through the weekend knowledge base that my mother had just died that weekend and that I was about to get on a plane and fly and I was going to see the whole clan get together and then we were going to have calling hours and then a a memorial service the next day and then there was going to be a cremation and a planned scattering of ashes and all sorts of things were about to happen. But at those calling hours and at the reception line, those face-to-face conversations that happen during those two days where there's a viewing one night and a memorial service the next day, I can measure those face-to-face conversations. There's a lot of people that I shook hands with who who knew my mom but didn't know me. Fair enough. And there weren't a ton of people who I know, and I'm still connected with on social media, who I encountered in either one of those events at all. But I will tell you that with almost no exceptions that I can name, there might be one exception. I'm going to have to stop and think about it. But if you divide our country up into red and blue, which I hate to do, but if you do that... And you eliminate the immediate family, you know, because of course, uh, all the siblings and their their significant others and their children, those folks will be there. Cousins were there, but if you eliminate all those people, the non-family people who are part of my social media network, who have been a part of my church family for my entire life, blue ones showed up to those events and stopped in the line to speak with us and offer words of comfort. And again, I, I struggle to think of a single red one who did. If a red state proud Trump supporter who's been praying for me because I'm an idiot who doesn't understand why um, the current GOP is the same as it's always been when I've got really good evidence to suggest it looks nothing like Eisenhower, uh, nothing like Gerald Ford even, not much like Ronald Reagan, truth be known. But uh, those those folks didn't show up or if they showed up, they didn't go through the line or if they did go through the line, they cut out before they got to me. Now, this could be a, a warning sign for me. It could be an indication that I've got to check myself before I wreck myself because I am that unpleasant to deal with. But I don't think so. I think that I always try to treat people with dignity and respect and hold them in un- unconditional positive regard. I don't call people names. I don't tell them they're going to burn in hell. I don't do whatever the atheist equivalent of that is. I try to keep things, I try to maintain the conversation. I want to hear the rest of the story. And you can't do that if you burn the pages of the book before the story's gotten finished. But I will tell you that if there's a little bit that I need to work on there, there's a heck of a lot that these other people need to work on. Again, if there was an an occasion for one of these people who think I need to change courses that I'm on the wrong path had to hold my hands and let me know that we are still in a relationship with each other, even if we haven't seen each other in 15 years, because we're connected on Facebook, we still are part of each other's lives, and that they have said they're praying for me and they mean it and here they are in person, praying for me in my time of greatest need, even if the conversation isn't about politics, which would, would have been pretty inappropriate, if the conversation was just about things related to dealing with my mom, managing the transition from being a child to being parentless, just the entire journey of of dealing with the end of a living space where mom doesn't need a car anymore, mom doesn't need a condo anymore, all those sort of things. Somebody could have held my hand in those situations and said, it's going to be okay, we can disagree about everything else, but we can agree that we both love your mother. That did not happen. Not even once by somebody who, if they had to pick up a crayon to announce who they were, at least politically, would have picked up the red crayon. 
If this is a red pill, blue pill situation, only people who swallowed the blue pill had any words of comfort to offer me. And I felt relatively isolated and relatively comfortless. There was one exception. When I went into the place where the open casket was, and I'm not an open casket funeral kind of guy. I, I don't have a problem with it. It's just not really my thing. But I was, I was there. I was uh, complying with my mother's wishes that there be an open casket followed by a memorial service with a cremation, all that other sort of stuff. That there'd be no graveside service per se. But in the midst of that, I was looking around at the flowers. I was very pleasantly surprised, I suppose. I, I never really paid much notice to funeral flowers before. Um, one time in my life, maybe I was at a, at a funeral where just the sheer number of flowers coming from the variety of places that it did kind of surprised me. Um, the owner of one of the companies that I used to work at was getting flowers from various college football teams, professional football teams, chambers of commerce, former governors. It was kind of noteworthy just because of the variety and the celebrity of the people who had sent flowers to this person's calling hours. Whereas it was a much more modest display, and part of the reason that it was, was that the obituary that the family crafted together this time praised the Lord, that we all worked together on it. And it wasn't one son gets to write the obituary for, yeah, no, but because of the way we'd written it, we'd sort of, in lieu of flowers, donations would be preferred, that sort of thing. There weren't a ton of flowers, but I was surprised that there were flowers from my employer. Uh, that was very nice. Flowers from my, my wife's dad. So there were flowers from the in-laws from my side of the family. Flowers from the, let's call them the blue people from my childhood growing up church experience who did stop to offer words of comfort and, and let me know that they're kind of aware of what my point of view and my older brother's point of view, or at least his wife's point of view, have been on social media and that we're not alone even though we're in Oklahoma trying to deal with a funeral service in a state like that. But also flowers from two women who I recognized the names immediately, but I did not want to jump to the conclusion that they were from my side of the family. Uh, and I think that is the right way to word it. <clears throat> These flowers came from my side of the family. But I didn't want to assume that, so I sort of uh, was put in the situation of needing to ask around, saying, hey, these are from my work. I recognize that. There's my wife's dad. Do you know these two women? I asked my older brother and his wife. I asked my, my sister. Um, nobody seemed to know, meaning that they were obviously my people. And in some ways, this couple that I had defended and in some ways used it as an example in one of the last conversations I had with my mom about something as important as whether two people who love each other are allowed to love each other, contributed flowers to my mom's funeral. Blue flowers, if you will, where there were none or very, not very many red flowers to sort of compensate. They had sent those flowers in honor of my mom to comfort me. And it worked. And it stood out because it was exceptional. It was exceptional not necessarily because of the beauty of the flowers. Again, I'm not really that much of a flower person. It was exceptional because it was different from the rest. It was not... These were not words I was hearing from a lot of the people that I grew up with. There weren't a lot of people from the neighborhood who were able to come. And in some ways, it would have been... I think the whole thing would have been very difficult and very depressing for me had it not been for the fact that I knew that that vase of flowers from those two women was going to be delivered from the funeral home to my house and be in my mom's apartment as a testimony that when I said I took love seriously and I took the relationship of men and women in different forms that are not necessarily sexual seriously 
and that my entire life had been built upon those philosophies, that he was a very real, beautiful to look at, beautiful to smell example of that, that was in the funeral home and that was in the home itself. And it came from people that I think some folks in my extended family would deny actually exist if forced to ask the question of whether that relationship is real simultaneously made me very sad and very happy. And it was one of the very few moments of closure that I've actually been able to get so far in calendar year 2017, because my friends, unbeknownst to me, chose to tell the rest of the story. I've decided to tell their story without any names, because I think we live in a point in American history where I can't guarantee that I can protect those people. I don't know that our country is as safe a place for them as it probably seemed to be when they got married. And that kind of leads me in to some of the writings that I wanted to refer to in the Different Drummer segment from the new novel movement. Our Different Drummer today is author Alain Robegrier. I shared a clip with a book review that was written for a now no longer existent podcast called Books You Should Read, where the idea was getting together podcast fans and perhaps podcasters from all over the world to contribute a very short segment about a short story to help create a Books You Should Read episode that instead of being about uh, novels, nonfiction works, could be about short stories, where it might be difficult to do a Books You Should Read in the format that that show was in focused just on a four-page or a five-page work. But if enough people contributed, you might be able to pull one together. I'll share that again here. Previously, it appeared in the body of an Inappropriate Conversations podcast in the very first year, talking about art itself, the concept of art, and to some degree the controversy around art. This time I'm going to do it inside the Different Drummer segment, because the short story I chose to focus on is The Secret Room from Snapshots by... Rob Grier. Those are the opening lines to Leonard Cohen's nineteen ninety two song The Future. The reference to Alain Robcrier's short story, The Secret Room, could be coincidental. It is nevertheless unmistakable. Describing what the narrator sees, the author could just as well be analysing a series of strange photographs. This method is apparent in the title of the short story collection published in 1962. The English translation is Snapshots. Told almost in reverse, Rob Crier describes a bloodstain, a dead body, a torture victim in the throes of death, and elements of the torture itself. He focuses on things like the look of the room, the lines formed by the pattern of streaming blood, and stairs leading up and out. He describes her naked and bound body as if he didn't have any context for what arms or legs or breasts might otherwise do. While the author is acknowledged as a key member of the new novel movement in 1950s France, my first exposure to his work was the screenplay Last Year at Marienbad, 
like his fiction, the 1961 film dangles over the edge of highbrow art, with very little plot or characterization to hold on to. It is both pretentious and a masterpiece. The Secret Room is from the same period. The narrator does not provide and may not know the answers to the questions raised in the story. Who is the man in the room? What is his relationship to the woman? If she is his victim as it appears, what led to this and why? The story is brilliant for its ambiguity. I have found myself referring to The Secret Room on many occasions, both in my life and while enjoying art. Films like Memento reminded me of the structure. Cube reminded me of these unanswered questions, at least for most of the movie. I hesitate to offer my own interpretation, not wanting to spoil the story or reveal too much of myself, to be honest. Suffice to say that there are times when I wonder if the way men objectify women doesn't subconsciously lead down these stairs. The woman becomes just a body, just parts, ultimately lifeless. Far from being twisted and mental, I think it is a healthy thing to ask whether anyone is chained to the floor of some secret room in my memory. If I don't take this story seriously enough and challenge myself, I can almost hear Leonard Cohen warning of a time when we won't even know how to apologize for the things we think. He wrote, When they said repent, I wonder what they meant. I recommend the short works of new novelists Alain Robcrier and also Nathalie Sachot. Their style poses a challenge. Plot devices are not to the point, and characters often have no names or backgrounds. For some, it makes the stories too distant. For me, it almost makes them too personal. Britannica.com says this. Rogue Ray was trained as a statistician and agronomist. He claimed to write novels for his time, especially attentive to the ties that exist between objects, gestures, and situations, avoiding all psychological and ideological commentary on the actions of the characters. Rogue Gray's world is neither meaningful nor absurd. It merely exists. If his fiction, with his timetables, careful inventory of things, and reports on arrivals and departures, owes anything to the traditional novel, it is to the detective story. His first work, The Erasers, deals with a murder committed by the man who has come to investigate it. The thing I guess I like the best about that is one of the very first authors I've ever cited was Edgar Allan Poe. He was a different drummer at Halloween time, very first year of Inappropriate Conversations. And so maybe there is something with the connection of the father of the detective story and a new novelist who did a lot to deconstruct the detective story. For me, Rogue Grier, as that uh, Books You Should Read segment kind of pointed out, clearly existed first as a screenwriter and was appropriately honored for his work. Uh, he's noted at IMDb uh, as being the winner of the Golden Lion in Venice in 1961 for a screenplay for last year at Marienbad, the film by Alan René. Now, my feelings for this film are very high. René has been named a different drummer also in the very first year. Surprising to me that it's taken me this long to get around to Rogue Gray, who actually wrote the work in what is described as a truly inventive collaboration between the two. One of those collaborations where you've got two people putting together a story, each very careful to provide optimal respect to the other author and their contributions. He's got 17 IMDb credits as a writer and um, only, what is it, 10 credits as a director. Then, of course, then that's kind of surprising to, to move from successful screenwriter to successful director as well. 
along with a couple of acting credits. So it would be wrong to pigeonhole Rogrier as being either, quote-unquote, just a writer, or, for that matter, to talk about him as being just a director. Wikipedia says this, Rogrier was born in Brest, France, to a family of engineers and scientists. He was trained as an agricultural engineer, and during the years 1943 and 44, participated in compulsory labor in Nuremberg, where he worked as a machinist. The initial few months were seen by Rogrier as something of a holiday, since in between the very rudimentary training he was given to operate the machinery, he had free time to go to the theater and the opera. In 1945, he completed his diploma, the National Institute of Agronomy, and later he worked as an agronomist in places like Martinique, French Guinea, Guadalupe, and Morocco. So uh, a career as an engineer, trained as a machinist, but also an author at the same time. His claim to fame is being an influential member of the new Roman, the new novel movement, the type of 1950s French novel that diverged from classical literary genres. The term was coined by the French newspaper Le Monde in 1957 to describe certain writers who experimented with style in each novel, creating essentially a new style each time. Alain Rogrier was an influential theorist as well as a writer in that movement, published a series of essays on the nature and future of the novel, which were later collected into a book about the new novel movement. He rejected many of the establishment features of the novel to date, regarding many earlier novelists as old-fashioned in their focus on plot, action, narrative, ideas, and character. Instead, he put forward a theory of the novel as focused on objects, the ideal new novel, would be an individual version and vision of things, subordinating the plot and character to the details of the world rather than enlisting the world in their service. I think in that segment, talking about The Secret Room, it's a pretty good example where the woman is almost an object, and to me his purpose for objectifying the woman served the narrative more than it would have had she actually been a character. For some people, I would understand the argument that the dehumanizing aspect of the the role of the woman in that story could be used as a way of saying that that would take you take you out of the story or make it less personal. But for me, I don't know, it kind of roped me in. I knew at the time that I was traveling by plane, or planes plural, to this funeral, that I needed to fill my head with something that was fictional, something that I could invest myself in, maybe get something from that that wouldn't either destroy me or distract me. The first thought I had was, this is absolutely not the time to be reading or rereading Camus' The Stranger. I still think that Camus begins with one of the greatest first sentences in the history of literature, but that first sentence being, Mother died today, or possibly yesterday, uh, not a good way to go. So instead I brought with me one of the other new novelists that uh, I mentioned in that review, Natalie Sarot. I've got a very old copy, perhaps even near original lease from an American publishing, of Tropisms. This was a book that she released in 1939. And the English copyright is 1963, and I believe I'm holding a 1963 copy right now. This new novel movement is important enough to me that it's it's not my favorite, it's not where I go to for the genre, but important enough to me, especially in its entries and short works, that I did find, almost unexpectedly, more comfort than distraction. I want to end this different drummer segment praising the works of Rogrier, not by reading anything from any of his novels or short stories, but instead by taking one of the short chapters in Sarut's book, Tropisms, 
and kind of sharing what I was reading on the plane and how I think it's possible, even though it might be odd, it's possible to find comfort in the words of a story where the characters are so fully anonymous that it might be appropriate to question their existence. This is from chapter five. She remained motionless on the edge of her bed, occupying the least possible space, tense, as though waiting for something to burst, to crash down upon her in a threatening silence. At times, the shrill notes of locusts in a meadow petrified by the sun, and as though dead, induced the sensation of a cold, of solitude, of abandonment, and a hostile universe in which something anguishing is impending. In the silence, penetrating the length of the old blue-striped wallpaper in the hall, the length of the dingy paint, she heard the little click of a key in the front door. She heard the study door close. She remained there, hunched up, waiting, doing nothing. The slightest act, such as going to the bathroom to wash her hands, letting the water run from the tap, seemed like a provocation. A sudden leap into the void, an extremely daring action. In the suspended silence, in the sudden sound of water, it would be like a signal, like an appeal directed towards them. It would be like a horrible contact, like touching a jellyfish with the end of a stick and then waiting with loathing for it suddenly to shudder, rise up, and fall back down again. She sensed them like that, spread out, motionless, on the other side of the walls, and ready to stutter, to stir. Do you love Star Trek? How about a good, scary movie? Do sexy warrior princesses haunt your dreams? Then you'll love Starbase 66, the international Star Trek horror and fantasy podcast. Join Rick, Karen, and Kennedy each week as they discuss your favorite and not-so-favorite movies and TV shows, only on the simply syndicated 21st Century Media Network. So I ended that with an extensive quote from Natalie Sarut from her book Tropisms about feeling like you don't belong, feeling like it would be better to not make contact, and that any real contact would be extremely and explosively dangerous. I needed to hear those words, because those words provided me some context for how I felt for a fair amount of time, standing in the condo of a woman who had recently died, trying to figure out how to go through all of her possessions how to decide what was valuable to any one of us, how to determine what to do with things which were not deemed valuable to any one of us, and how to dispose of those things in an optimal and appropriate way. Especially when it seemed the question of what is valuable was inherently provocative. If I wanted something, would that be a place of conflict between me and my siblings over whether it was appropriate for me to want it? If I didn't want something, would that be viewed as dismissive and um, disrespectful of their feelings or their emotional contact with the thing? And how quickly could we get to the point of saying we can now complete the elements of the will and testament by having this condo ready to put up for sale and its possessions removed and placed appropriately? If many of us were paralyzed, myself at times included, with an indecision about what to do and a concern that anything that broke the silence was going to be, by its nature, inherently negative. This ties into my sense that from a storytelling perspective, sometimes 
any any story that was told was going to be viewed as suspicious because too many stories I don't know the rest of the story about. I don't have the ending. I don't have the closure. Now, I originally conceived of a topic talking about storytelling and um, the new novel movement. Grobe Grier is a different drummer. The dreamlike nature of last year, Marion Bad is a film and kind of walk through something called The Ungame. And the reason it seems more appropriate now to take a little more time than I normally would on an inappropriate conversation show to go there, to include that, is that The Ungame, as a concept, is living proof that as a family, we had historically been very good at telling our stories. I asked the question, in anger, and I'll admit that it was a question raised in anger. What in the heck happened to... What we experienced as a kid, the way we communicated to each other, how open we were to refugees from another country, of course, in this case, the country is Vietnam, or people who had a different, had made different life decisions sexually, maybe um, homeless with a child or bisexual or whatever. What happened to suddenly turn that to where now at the end of my mom's life, we were totally shut down on all of these things. How do you reconcile being somebody who lived your life with an openness toward homeless people thrown out of their house because their parents disagreed with their sexuality and where we are now at the end of a life? How do you reconcile the openness we had toward refugee families from an enemy country where we had fought a war to how we're acting about people who are in the midst of situations beyond their control, many of them Christian in a Muslim nation seeking refuge? It didn't make sense. And I think one of the one of the things that I look at to help me understand it is the difference when my dad died. That my mom and dad as a partnership were pro- probably a different thing than either one of them separately would have been. On his own, my dad could be very gruff, very very by the numbers, not interested necessarily in, in prioritizing feelings equally with actions. And my mom balanced that out. Well, he also provided a heck of a lot of balance to her. His memory was very, very good. Uh, He was solid with math. And by that, I mean not just math, but also logic. He would have been able to recognize what the differences were, but also what the connections and commonalities were. I think the absence of my father was, was a big deal. But during the time that my father was alive, during the time that we were all kids, either in high school or grade school or even early college, we had something in our life called the ungame. And again, it's one of these ironies that I don't know if I can resolve in my head without some degree of struggle, but I think it's worth talking about it because as a family, this is something that we would play for time to time. So let me describe it. I think you'll see the irony that a a game entirely built around the concept of sharing and storytelling and talking to each other was such an impactful part of my growing up. And it just makes even more sad and ironic how missing the elements that this game was designed to engender have been here on the other side of the story, at or near the end. Wikipedia says this, The Ungame is a non-competitive learning communication board game created by Ria Zakic in 1972. It is a game of conversation which, quote, fosters listening skills as well as self-expression, unquote. Zakic, then a young mother from Garden Grove, California, was forced not to speak for months after her doctor found polyps on her vocal cords. Although the polyps were removed, and she made full recovery, the experience affected her. Unable to speak for that long period and afraid that the problem might return, she felt emotionally estranged from her family. This led her to the realization that, as she put it, we all spend so much time talking, but we never really communicate. 
As a remedy, she decided to write down on paper cards a number of questions that she wanted to ask her husband and children. Some were lighthearted. What do you like to do in your spare time? Some serious and intimate. If you could live your life over, what would you change? In the long run, and nearly 200 cards on her hands, she realized that she could turn them into sort of a board game. I've later seen it be just a card game, but the same concept. She played it with her family, and the results were surprising. Her husband revealed for the first time how frightened her illness made him. Her son, a bright student, expressed how he hated the constant pressure to perform well in school. The other son talked about his brothers constantly teasing him and how that hurt. At the end of a game session, her husband said, I've learned more about all of you in these 20 minutes than in the past five years. It was the first time each family member really felt listened to and heard, since the game rules state that the players can only talk on their turns. This turned into a game. My family owned a copy of that game. And I will say that if the father's observation can be trusted, first, if his assumption that their gameplay was only 20 minutes long can be believed, wasn't our experience, I think it took longer, but... If he can be trusted that in 20 minutes he learned more about his family than he did in the previous five years, because it felt like the first time that they were really communicating with each other, really listening to each other, that they felt listened to and heard, I will tell you that I'm afraid the theme of this Inappropriate Conversations podcast is what it feels like to know that the opposite, at times, might be just as true. Thanks for listening. show is a proud member of the pride 48 podcasting network check out other great podcasts at pride 48.com slash shows